presence. Yo, G, I be there to see why your homies ain't working their booties off. I assure you, Lord Vader, my men are working as fast as they can. We be seeing if they get this ride going with six foot seven of black staring down. I tell you, this station will be operational as planned. Well, the man don't think so, and he be cruising down here to check out this ride. The Empress coming here? Yeah, and he gonna put a cap in your white ass. We shall double our efforts. Damn straight. And remember, this be CNN. to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be talking about Snowball Earth, Rogue Stars, and Hydrogen Buckyballs. In addition, we'll be joined by Brian Williamson to discuss biodiesel trucks. Also, we'll find out what is soap. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks. Frankly Rocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Pretty awesome. Is that right? Awesome yeah. this week. Why is that? We're four years old. You know, I don't feel like a day over three, but <laughs> happy birthday, happy anniversary. It was an accident, right? <laughs> What's that? Did someone forget to uh, use protection? I think it was the station, really, that forgot to use the protection. Oh, right. <laughs> they let us in here, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> we just wouldn't go away. Yeah, pro-life, man. And look what it's gotten them. No ordinary idiots. That's right. Well, yes, well, happy anniversary. Uh, it is our fourth anniversary show. Well, happy anniversary to you too, Charles. Indeed. I'm not really sure what we should do for that. What What does the fourth anniversary entail? I know the first is usually the paper, and the 25th is usually the gold anniversary, but the fourth... I think it should be pure hype. The hype anniversary. The hype is so great that it doesn't even matter if we don't live up to expectations. <laughs> well, I think you have to have expectations in order to live up to them. Uh, otherwise, I don't really know where you can get hype. It's not at the Hallmark store. No, but, you know, you get in the media every day. <laughs> But, you know, we don't even have hype on this show, which might be the reason we're not hyping. 
Are you overhyping that? I don't even know how I could. Sp- hype is going to save the world. There you go. There's some <laughs> hype. As as you can tell, we've already started partying <laughs> on our anniversary show. Yes. But in any case, <laughs> foreseen the next four years. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. What what do you see for the next four years of the Grok show? Isn't isn't four the number of death really? In oh yeah, in Chinese, it's, the sound is exactly the same. So people will say that four is an unlucky number. Oh okay. Yeah, I don't know how we should think about that. So maybe the last year was the unlucky year, or are we just starting the unlucky? Perhaps <laughs> the dark times are ahead of us. <laughs> I don't think so. I think you can think of it as like two half years, and then we're at eight. Oh okay. And eight is the lucky. Case. So do you split on a double four or are you double down? Okay. Two through six you split on a double four. <laughs> We're talking about blackjack, by the way. Indeed. Especially as is warranted for a science show, you should talk about numerology, number one, <laughs> and then gambling. <laughs> But in any case, so our anniversary show, do we have much more? Let's talk about radiation. I was experiencing some radiation just the other day. And it, it turns you on, right? It gets me hot <laughs> and hyped. Ooh. And apparently it turns earthworms on. So they get all Well, uh, they go horny. from uh, asexual reproduction into sexual reproduction. So uh, there's a species of earthworm in Japan, and what they found <clears> is that when exposed to worms to 4.5 micrograys of radiation per hour, that, that is uh, 15 times the natural background radiation, they went from asexual to sexual reproduction. 85% of them actually produced eggs rather than mm. just fragmenting. So do they think there's some sort of evolutionary rationale behind this that Sunny better genetically to reproduce sexually? Well, so they think this is a relic of evolutionary history where hundreds of millions ago, the radiation on Earth was 10 times higher than it is mm. today, and this was part of the preferred mode of reproduction, mm. but now it's surviving pretty well in the asexual mode. So it's just waiting for the Earth to start becoming irradiated more, and then it'll be one big love fest for the worms. Perhaps once you remove the ozone layer... <laughs> The worms will invade. I think it's always been overrated, the ozone layer. All right, so uh, this is found in the recent edition of Journal of Environmental Radioactivity. Well, so do you ever dream about running away from it all? All the time, but it just keeps following me. Do you already keep getting sucked back in? You mean reality, right? <laughs> Ours is the Matrix. I think we're in the Matrix right now, because I can't imagine anyone will let us on the air for four years. Yeah, there is something wrong, huh? <laughs> it's got to be the Matrix. But as it turns out, have you ever thought about trying to escape the Milky Way? That could be a tough one. Isn't the gravitational pull a little bit hard? It is indeed pretty hard, and it would take some hyper velocities to get you out of there. Yeah. And it turns out that there are, in fact, a few stars that are uh, speeding away from the galaxy. Quite fascinating considering the fact that the gravitational pull should be sucking them back in. Oh, really? Yeah, and it's very fascinating. They've actually discovered the first example of this, a speedster star called SDSS, but it's, it's traveling away from the Milky Way at 700 kilometers per second. I think that's over the speed limit, right? It's, it's slightly over the galactic speed limit, I think, yeah. <laughs> But it, it looks like, based on their observations, that this star was slingshotted out of the galactic center by its companion star. So it was thought that this star was a binary star orbiting around each other. Hmm. One got caught in the galactic center and slung the other one out into intergalactic space. Wow, that sounds like the uh, episode of Star Trek Four, you know, where they slingshot around the sun. <laughs> and they go back in time. Yeah. So I wonder if that star is actually going back into time. Yeah, maybe we're seeing it actually get sucked back in, but because from our perspective, it's looking like it's going out. Right. Ah. Yeah, that's, that's good science for you when we can... <laughs> when we're referencing Star Trek. <laughs> but anyway, so this is very fascinating, and this uh, result was actually predicted almost 20 years ago by Jack Hills, an astronomer at Los Alamos, and it's fa- quite fascinating. They think that there might be at least maybe 10,000 more of these hypervelocity stars escaping the galaxy. And it's very fascinating, and they're thinking and plotting these trajectories of these stars could uh, reveal the hidden dark matter in the universe. So if anyone's interested in more, this was published in a forthcoming issue of the Astrophysical Journal.
So how much gas do you put in your balloon, Charles? It depends where I fill it from. What kind of gas are you talking about? <laughs> well, there's all sorts of gases. Uh, <laughs> got, got nitrogen, oxygen, a little methane, <laughs> chlorine, so and xenon, a xenon. very unappreciated gas. Very polarizable, you know. <laughs> yeah. So it turns out you can actually fill a fillerine with hydrogen molecules. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure what the application is, <laughs> but it has been demonstrated that you can fill these buckyballs, this carbon-based molecule, basically this ball structure with a hollow inside, and now be able to do it by filling it with hydrogen gas. So is there a limit to how many hydrogen atoms you can put in here? Uh, just one, but what this team from Kyoto University has showed is that they can make milligrams of this buckyball material filled with hydrogen gas do a four-step synthesis. Clever mechanism for caging hydrogen for local delivery or something. Perhaps, yeah. but it's quite stable. Apparently after this molecule is made, it can be heated and the hydrogen will still be in there for quite a while Un until the cage breaks. Okay, can break the cage chemically. Mm-hmm. Interesting. There is a very nice article in Science, Von 307. Okay, Frank, do you dust frequently? Sure. I mean, got allergies, you know, I don't want all those pollen mites around. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, kicking up all that dust might actually cool down your apartment. It might cool it down. At least maybe not your apartment, but it could cool the global Earth environment. You mean like putting sit in the atmosphere so it reflects more light out? Exactly. This was actually seen after the eruption of Mount Pinatubo in Philippines in 1991, where scattered dust actually cooled the atmosphere a little bit. Uh -huh. And actually, some researchers now are suggesting that dust clouds, actually interstellar dust clouds, mm -hmm. might be responsible for the snowball Earth effect. Isn't the one that's proposed by Joe Kirschmink? Indeed. And in fact, their argument is that uh, the snowball Earth, which is much more uh, severe than just a normal ice age, mm -hmm. when ice just begins to accumulate and reflects more sunlight, etc. Right. They think this could be triggered actually by the Earth passing through these stellar dust clouds, which then start reflecting sunlight, and that triggers sort of as a catalyst acts oh. to begin the snowball Earth effect. But you know, Patrick Michael says that because we're putting more <laughs> CO2 in the atmosphere, that may be countering this dust effect. You know, we might not even need a worry about that because we'll all be living underground. <laughs> so the researchers suggest that there could be detectable signatures of such interstellar dust clouds, uranium-235 in the sedimentary layer, the geological record. But of course, this doesn't really sit well with many geologists who think that the theory is somewhat unfounded and in fact hard to explain because it looks like the number of episodes is just between 600 and 750 million years and then nothing. So why would you have such strange periods like that? Mm -hmm. In any case, if you're interested in the snowball earth, reported recently in the recent edition of Nature News. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, David Williamson joins us to talk about biodiesel in recycling trucks. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. The city of Berkeley has always been an environmental pioneer. In 1973, they started the nation's first recycling program, and once again, they're making headway. This time, they're using biodiesel for their recycling trucks. Mr. David Williamson from the Ecology Center explains. Yeah, um, my name's Dave Williamson. I'm the operations manager of the Ecology Center, and uh, actually my official title is Recycling Operations Manager. I have been involved in uh, the Ecology Center here for over uh, six years. Actually, it's going to be seven years in March. I've been uh, managing the curbside program. So biodiesel is a renewable fuel. Uh, When did Berkeley first consider using it for their fleet? The Ecology Center made a decision uh, in uh, 2000 on its own. Uh, uh, We had a discussion and we wanted to go to alternative fuels. And so at that point I started investigating uh, various alternative fuels. Uh, at the time I was looking at compressed natural gas, liquefied natural gas, seemed like the two that can power uh, heavy duty trucks. And actually it was a, a Cal student and uh, who approached me about biodiesel. Uh, her name is Desiree Sideroff, and she uh, went, she graduated from Cal, went on to get a master's at MIT, and she's back here in, her, in the Bay Area. And at the time, she was working for the ASUC Student Composting Collective. And they actually preceded us in the use of biodiesel. So uh, we had a meeting one night, uh, actually one day, and uh, she asked me to uh, do a joint project with them with biodiesel, and I agreed to look into it. And I was immediately impressed with the sustainability of the fuel. Unlike the other uh, alternative fuels, biodiesel is sourced. In other words, it's obtained from the biosphere. Hence, it's uh, a heck of a lot more sustainable than any other uh, petroleum-based fuel. And where do you get your fuel from? Uh, aside from the gas station? <laughs> okay. Now, our uh, fuel is, uh, first of all, the Ecology Center uh, is uh, a contractor to the city of Berkeley. Uh, we're also a uh, 501c3. We're uh, a nonprofit, we're, and uh, secondly, we're a membership organization. In fact, your listeners can uh, join the Ecology Center uh, for the low, low price of $35. They get discounts and all sorts of benefits, and um, the uh, and ironic, not ironically, but uniquely, I think we're one of the few environmental membership organizations that operate a DOT Class Eight heavy duty truck fleet. So that in, that kind of uh, set the uh, stage for the use of biodiesel as part of our contract with uh, the city of Berkeley. We uh, fuel at the city of Berkeley uh, fueling stations, um, and uh, so the city of Berkeley itself is now using 100 uh, percent uh, biodiesel. After we started using it, after about a year and a half, uh, the city of Berkeley passed a resolution uh, to convert their entire fleet to uh, pure biodiesel. As a matter of fact, uh, as we speak, uh, Berkeley is still the largest fleet in North America using uh, pure biodiesel. It's the second largest fleet in the world using biodiesel. Only the city of Kyoto has more vehicles than Berkeley. Berkeley operates as many as 188 vehicles, diesel powered trucks and lawnmowers and other uh, service equipment uh, with biodiesel. So if we want to get biodiesel for our cars, uh, where should we go? Our fueling station, unfortunately, is for uh, city fleet and city contractors. There is a uh, station here in Berkeley for residents, Biodiesel Oasis, and um, they are open uh, in the late evening about five days a week, Uh, Saturdays, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. And uh, they have uh, they have built up quite a clientele, a very uh, unique uh, uh, Berkeley-centric organization. And now that your trucks run on biodiesel, do you have to do any special modifications on them, on the engines, uh, any particular type of maintenance? 
Biodiesel uh, has a one of the po- advantages to biodiesel is that unlike any other alternative fuel, or as I say, uh, um, unlike a lot of other alternative fuels, you don't make any massive engine modifications. What you do is you take precautions. Uh, specifically, you have to do three things. You have to uh, check your fuel tanks, to make sure that uh, they're that they that they're clean, that there isn't any rust or water or, or dirt in it. And this is because biodiesel is a uh, it's a methyl ester, but it's uh, derived from vegetable oil, and it's pretty darn close to being a food product. And there's bacteria and mold that live in actual petroleum diesel. And once these uh, uh, species get in touch with biodiesel, they go crazy. So uh, we have to make you have to have a clean fuel tank. Not as difficult as it as it may sound, but that's a precaution. The second thing you need to do is ensure that you have no rubber in your fuel system. In other words, rubber fuel hoses, uh, rubber fuel return lines, rubber gaskets. Again, not a big problem. Uh, most uh, vehicles made after 1993 uh, have uh, little to no rubber in the fuel system. Just because at one point they were using methanol as an additive to diesel, so uh, that's pretty much taken care of. In the older vehicles, it's a problem. And, and and then the third thing you need to do is change your fuel filters immediately after you change to biodiesel. Now, uh, there's a legend going around um, in the biodiesel community that you have to change fuel filters a lot. And if you have clean fuel, if you have a clean fuel tank, and your uh, fuel system is reasonably uh, clean and rubber free you won't need to change your fuel filters any often than any more often than you normally do in my fleet we change our fuel filters uh, four times a year in your passenger car maybe as little as once a year and uh, but we're a truck fleet and we have a heavy duty cycle so that's why we have to do with that a lot and could you tell us what has been the biggest benefit from this program so far uh the biggest benefit is the uh the, the reduction in emissions, especially in the neighborhoods, our trucks operate in residential areas and near schools, and um, which is not quite unique, but it's a little special. And uh, a diesel engine is a pretty dirty engine if it uses straight-up diesel. Um, it has a lot of particulates. It has nitrogen oxides, and it has it emits polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. This is on the test, and uh, also sulfur compounds, and also straight-up hydrocarbons. Uh, biodiesel reduces or eliminates all of that with the exception of the nitrogen oxides. Uh, there is a 5.8% uh, or so uh, increase in the nitrogen oxides, but uh, on the other hand, you'll receive at least a 50% decrease in particulates, at least an 85% decrease in the opacity, that's the soot you see, at least a 85% decrease in mutagenicity, and uh, an 85% decrease in the uh, such nasty such as benzene, toluene, and others. And how much does it cost to transform the fleet? Uh, what's the payback? There's an incremental cost to using biodiesel. And the uh, biodiesel, uh, up until the uh, turn of the year, had about 80% price, uh, 80 cents uh, per gallon price premium over conventional diesel fuel. Now, um, the advantage to using biodiesel, though, is that uh, all the costs uh, for this alternative fueling system is embodied in the cost of the fuel. Uh, so if you can't afford to capitalize a, uh, a fueling station for natural gas, if you can't afford uh, special devices to put in your truck, or you can't afford to buy new trucks, then biodiesel is a reasonable alternative. But there is a price premium. Um, as far as uh, payback, 
it's uh, it's a question of whether or not um, there there are certainly avoided costs, uh, but it, it's a little abstract. But uh, as you as you know, as I just uh, stated to you, and this is a NREL National Renewable Energy Laboratory data. There, there uh, the exhausts uh, from biodiesel uh, certainly have uh, less of a health impact uh, than conventional diesel fuel. So since biodiesel comes from vegetable oil, uh, the exhaust often smells like food. Uh, what has been the public's response to that? I've, I've been involved in recycling for 15 years, and um, and actually uh, one, of the, one of the reactions about biodiesel really took me aback. Um, in addition to managing the program, I also fill in as a substitute driver on occasion. And, and when we first converted to biodiesel, uh, people would literally leave their house and come up to me as I was driving the truck and uh, ask if we were running our trucks on vegetable oil. And I would explain that there is a difference, and but essentially yes, and they would thank me for it. And it was one of the only times I've been thanked for doing my job. So it has uh, an extraordinary level of uh, extraordinary level of public uh, support here in Berkeley, and and the people get it. The people understand you're pumping less toxins into the neighborhood, and also that you're getting your fuel from someplace that doesn't need a war, you know, and it's local. And who are the other leaders in the uh, the biodiesel movement? There's other leaders out there. <laughs> uh, city of uh, Windsor uh, made a conversion to uh, 100% biodiesel, and um, I applaud them for that. Uh, Half Moon Bay is looking into it. Uh, San Francisco is very serious about it. And uh, the Bay Area itself uh, <clears throat> is sort of a nexus, uh, partly due to Berkeley, uh, partly due to um, the Berkeley Biodiesel Collective and other um, grassroots organizations. And uh, the Bay Area, is, because of all this, is, is a nexus uh, of biodiesel consumption and biodiesel interest. I might add there's another group out here that have been using biodiesel and, and actually preceded the Ecology Center in the use of biodiesel is Green Team. Uh, the garbage collector in uh, San Jose, and uh, they used uh, B100, I believe, exclusively for three months. I think they switched back to a blend. I should follow up. If anyone knows, they should contact us, but, um, you know, that they certainly should be recognized also. Uh, Mr. Williamson, it's a real pleasure having you on Berkeley Grocks today. Are, are there any last words you'd like to add? Well, uh, the Ecology Center, as I mentioned, uh, is a uh, 501c3. We're a nonprofit community group. Uh, we're probably the oldest continuing recycling program in the United States. We uh, started in 1973, and we celebrated our 30th anniversary uh, a year and a half ago. And uh, we uh, intend to uh, press on. We're going to look into uh, different uh, propulsion systems for our vehicles. Uh, we've just expanded our farmer's market, and uh, we've, uh, we'll uh, continue fighting the good fight. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. And we were just talking to Mr. David Williamson, director of the Curveside Recycling Program at the Ecology Center here at Berkeley. To find out more, you can go to their website at www.ecologycenter.org. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, we'll find out how soap works, so stay tuned.
And now here's the crazy Scotsman with the answer to last week's question of the week. Alright, it's not really like great. Here I am, I'm bathing, I'm bathing all my stuff because I'm here in the Highlands getting all dirty from the muck and shite and cleaning Loch Ness Monster. But you know, it's really odd because to get that Loch Ness Monster really clean, you need some soap. And to make that soap is really involves creating micelles. Yes, right, bilipid bilayer type things which can entrap the soap very oddly. Yes, it's creating these little soap bubbles which can grab grease, dirt, which is highly hydrophobic, and the other side, which is highly hydrophilic. And that's how you get little soap bubbles, lad. And now I'm forced with this week's question of the week. Every time I'm in front of the typewriter or the computer, my fingers just go so slow, and I use it on the QWERTY keyboard. But why are the letters arranged in such a weird way? Why isn't it A, B, C, D? Well, if you know the answer, or think you know the answer, email us at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you might type just a little faster. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon, and stay tuned for more music with your host, Therese. Did I miss something? No. No? <laughs> for some reason, you looked strange when I said that.